let me introduce you to the life and times of James Ambrose Johnson Jr., better known as Rick James, bitch. (laughs) All right. Couldn't wait (laughs) for this one. Holy shit. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of History's Greatest Idiots, the show in which we bring you lessons from the past in which humans have screwed up their lives and messed things up to ridiculous levels, and hopefully we give you something that you can take from those and learn and never repeat those mistakes again. But who are we kidding? We humans, we just kind of like screwing up. It's kind of our raison d'etre, really. It's how we learn. (laughs) Um, Joining me as ever is my amazing co-host, Derek. Derek, how are you doing, buddy? How are things? I'm good, man. Uh, yeah. Football season started. That's huge here. Yeah. And uh, we just legalized online sports betting. So I'm doing some, some of that, like the de- degenerate gambler that I am. <laughs> <laughs> nice little income for the government there. That's uh, that's a smart move, I think. Um, yeah, I, it's funny because we've got the soccer season started up over here and there was a whole controversy at the end of last season because a bunch of Premier League teams and um, uh, Italian teams and Spanish teams tried to do a breakaway league called the European Super League and um, fans around Europe literally revolted like they were trying to storm the grounds <laughs> and um, it was so unpopular that within 24 hours um, something like, I think it was 6 out of the 9 teams had withdrawn themselves from contention, so they were yeah, fan that power whole thing yeah. blows my mind it's so complex the, the I know. system you guys have for soccer it's it's well, very complicated the yeah the, and the whole world the, the the one thing i will say is that um it didn't work largely because it was a money grab and uh the owners have not really been forgiven so yeah there's still a lot of animosity there anyway away from soccer we have oh. uh we are now on episode 17 there's some really really interesting uh people coming up in this episode i don't know too much about yours other than um i think you said a, was it a politician or am i getting that wrong? um well, yeah, yeah, in a way. Okay, yes. all right. <laughs> Derek, um, if you wouldn't mind, please tell me who this week's idiot is. All right, this one I kind of went back and forth on a lot because okay. I think the guy did some really, really horrible things. But okay. there was some good things about him that I kind of liked. Although it's the, the whole uh, having a good idea and then just taking shit too far. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, like Rufus the 13th Apostle in Dogma says, mankind got it all wrong by taking a good idea and building a belief structure around it. Uh, I, I just think it's better to have an idea that because you can change an idea. Changing a belief is trickier. Yes, and, that's uh, very true. I love that I, line. I mean, people kill and die for their beliefs, and this guy did that. <laughs> so here we go. He's born on May 6th, 1758, in uh, Arras, the old French province of Artois. Oh, cool. Okay. He's the oldest of four children, and his mother died in 1764. Okay. His father's so devastated by the passing of his mother, he decides he can no longer raise the children. So the two sisters go to his aunt, and he and his brother go to live at their mother's parents okay so by the age of eight he's got all kinds of crap going on but he's already literate and that pushes him along the way he starts middle school around eight okay uh by 1769 he's off to college de Simont, which is like a super prestigious secondary or high school sort of things as i understand it they've got a weird schooling system as far as uh, in America, high school and middle school and all that mean different things. But uh, And we generally don't call them colleges when sure, they're high yeah. schools. But <laughs> Anyway, so I'm trying to wrap my head around that. But while he's there, he starts getting interested in uh, the Roman Republic, along with the, the rhetoric of Cicero and Cato and Lucius Junius Brutus. And in 1776, he's awarded a first prize in rhetoric himself at his school. Wow. Uh, up until this point, uh, he's super impressive and seems like he's poised for greatness, in in my opinion. It's just, he really gets into, like, Jean-Jacques 
uh, Rousseau. Rousseau. Yes. Yep, and becomes intrigued by the ideas of the virtuous self and the, sure. the idea that the person stands alone accompanied only by his conscience. Okay. So, that's good that he's kind of getting into philosophy at that age. I mean, philosophy can be as good of a guide, uh, moral compass as anything in this world. So I, I hope he took it right. in the right direction. Well, you you would hope. I mean, in most <laughs> things, they start off in the right direction. So again, another positive. Mm-hmm. But uh, in 1776 to 1777, like his father and his father's father, he starts studying law. Okay. He studied for about three years at the Sorbonne okay. and graduated in July of 1780. By 1781, he gained admission to the bar, and by 1782, the, bitch, the bishop of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The bitch. The bitch of Arras appointed him <laughs> as one of the five judges in the criminal court. Oh, wow. Okay. And this is, you said 1776, so monumental this, year worldwide. Uh, uh, well, by now we're in 1782. Oh, I kind of glossed yeah. over the 1770s because okay, he okay. was in law school and he was boring. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, it's law school. It's boring. What can we do? Um, so he didn't stay as one of the five judges for very long because okay. he was opposed to the death penalty. Ooh. Uh, he was actually uncomfortable with ruling... Uh, on capital cases and that that's a little bit that's it's kind of interesting because later in life he doesn't uh, doesn't seem to have too much of a problem matter of fact he kind of becomes the face of ex- executions in france okay i think i know who this is now but carry on please <laughs> in the later part of the 1780s he started getting further into politics and became one of the 16 deputies for the pas de calice uh, ca- ca- uh, French stuff. Um, so, like, uh, voting district in northern France. He's like an elected okay. official or representative. It's my understanding of it. Um, okay. Anyway, he goes to Versailles and actually gets to address the king uh, with wow. his group. And they present this big, long, three-hour speech about institutional and political reforms that they think would work real well. Okay. Um the king says, nah, I'm not having any of that. Uh, this representation's kind of meaningless. We're going to do what I say. And that, that sets into motion some bigger things because June of 1788, he joins with some other representatives in a group that called themselves the National Assembly. And right. that revolutionary assembly kind of transformed into the National Constituent Assembly. And they discussed a new constitution and taxation system and okay, great. where they were going from here. Right. So <clears throat> that's the first stages of the French Revolution for those yeah. that are ahead of me already. <laughs> <laughs> In 1791, he becomes a very outspoken advocate for male citizens without mm-hmm. a political voice. Uh, he wants okay. unrestricted admission into the National Guard, which is like the French military and police reserve from how okay. I understand it. He good. also wants the common man to be eligible for public offices and a very american thing the right yeah. to carry arms in self defense this it's i've got to be honest so far this guy is he's he's speaking my language you know he's he, going for reforms he's making some positive changes in the right direction because france at the time was incredibly autocratic so oh, yeah. this is good we like this so far uh but yeah so far so so far so just good right. Um, As a leading member of the political groups that he's a part of, he he does play an important role in the fall of that French monarchy in August August of 1792, and the summoning of the National Convention happens right around that same time. Okay. Uh, Or or I'm totally lost on where I'm at here, but he has this goal of creating a one- an indivisible France with equality before law. He wants to abolish prerogatives and defend the principles of direct democracy. Ooh. And again, all sound like great things. Yeah, th- this is brilliant. Keep going, dude. I-, I really want you to do these reforms. This is brilliant stuff. So he gets involved with... Uh, well, he's a leading member of an insurrectionary Paris commune and okay. starts to get a little carried away. 
Because they start taking these good ideas and building a belief structure on them. Oh, God. And, in fact, in September of 1792, he's accused by some of his peers as trying to establish a dictatorship. Oh, that's not good. In April of 1793, he's urging the creation of a force made up of the common man to enforce revolutionary laws and take care of counter-revolutionary conspirators. Okay, this is starting to get a bit dark now. Uh, This is where, yeah, this is exactly where it takes that turn, because he's (laughs) all in for free and equal, except at the same time he starts to create this us-versus-them sort of... Narrative. situation yeah. yeah he gets to justify squashing dissent that way and people yeah. don't agree with him that's not which good. is yeah not a good thing <laughs> so that leads to an armed insurrection that happens between may and june of 1793 yeah famously in july of 1793 he's appointed as a member of the committee of public safety okay which really not safe at all uh it's a provisional government (laughs) in france that was behind the reign of terror in france from 1793 to 1794 oh man during that time uh those that were not actively defending france and this provisional government that he's a part of became an enemy uh, an enemy of the group an enemy of the state whatever you want to call it yeah but as a member of that committee of public safety he personally signed 542 arrest warrants Wow. And did he ever have a, time, a chance to sit down? That's that's a lot of signatures. Right? That's definitely more than one a day. Yeah, that is. And, and when you're looking at the that time, there's this law of 22... Uh, do you know how to say this? Because I, I mean, yeah. um, law of 22... Prairial? Prairial. Um, I'd have P-R-A-I-R-A-L. to see. P-R-A-I-R-I-A-L. I, maybe I just typed it wrong. Anyway, he's... <laughs> He's signing these warrants, and there's this new law that comes in that gives the Revolutionary Tribunal the power to just kind of mow down anybody they feel like is against them. Oh, yeah. And they also lead to um, only two outcomes really kind Mm -hmm. of happening at these tribunals, and it's you go free or you die. So Wonderful. uh, (laughs) It's not exactly the most uh, complex series of options, really, is it? Yeah, cake or death, like Eddie Izzard says. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So I guess um, this is where he does the 180 on the the, the death penalty thing because he's signing these warrants and yeah. getting these people round up and chopping off head like nobody's businesses. Oh God! Wait. <laughs> um, for all of that time, he maintained that many like-minded allies and all of the politically motivated executions and bloodshed that he was inciting mm. was a good thing. It was really bringing them through. But it started to have a lot of people uh, become disillusioned, and okay. um, he, he, like, he kind of dabbled in uh, messing around with, with religion at the same time. Okay. Uh, he, he got involved in establishing the cult of the supreme being. What? That was, it was, it was in, in lines with the school of thought of the uh, cult of reason, oh. reason and science and all that. But of it, it, it gets weird. Um, mm. I didn't go into that too much. I don't know why I wandered into it now. But it was his intent to replace the state religion with that cult of the supreme being, which sure. kind of went in to replace the Roman Catholic and, and mm. the the cult of reason itself. S- it sounds vaguely Masonic, because part of the Masonic ritual is to sort of... They talk about a grand architect. Um, right. With, uh, they don't like kind of give it a name but the letter is g so the implication is it's taken as god but uh, it's kind of referred to in fuzzy terms so that anyone can be a um a mason but yeah like the grand overall thing it, it is sounding a little masonic at this point to be honest it is well in the cult of reason is kind of like a deist sort of religion where it's like i believe there's something but it really don't give a fuck about us so <laughs> just try, try to be good um yeah. <laughs> He he was seeking to replace that cult of reason in the, the Roman Catholicism because right. he believed that reason was the only means to an end, and the singular end is virtue, which sounds good until you start to realize that virtue can kind of mean different things to different people. Yeah, it's very undefined again, isn't it? It's, uh, using very so, fluffy terms. It's that obsession with that. He, he kind of developed uh, this... Uh, need for an ideal republic 
and okay. kind of became indifferent uh, indifferent to the human costs of installing that ideal republic. Oh dear. And it turned everybody against him. And mm-hmm. on July 27th, 1794, he and his allies were arrested in Paris. Three days later, uh, about 90 others, uh, including him, were executed to cheering crowds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that actually ushered in the period known as the Thermidorian uh, Reaction. Yeah, I, that, I know the period right? you're talking about. The French Revolution is a series of like schisms, and this is one of the uh, the more kind of violent ones i think so yeah super violent it kind of it was the first one that took down the corrupt regime oh wow but it just kind of stood there and made way for you know napoleon and folks like him to come on in and yeah um and and then end up restoring the corrupt regime afterwards anyway so yeah so it didn't uh, help <laughs> one bit thanks so much Anyway, with the chopping off of his head that ended the reign of terror and the life of uh, a dude that I think is one of history's greatest idiots, perhaps, yep. uh, Maximilien Robespierre, Robespierre, one of the most influential figures of the French Revolution. He had some good ideas and meant well, but I think mm. he just kind of lost sight and became a murderous nutjob. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> there's, there is no greater summation of Robespierre than basically that. He st- he like a lot of people around about this time, and you know the fervor of the French Revolution was so strong, and it burnt so intensely that it, people got very carried away very quickly. And Super. he he is the embodiment <laughs> of that. You know, it, it went from we will decimate the aristocracy to if you don't agree with us, your head's going to fall in a basket. And uh, that's exactly what he did. He sliced heads like there was no tomorrow. It's a little bit... It's funny. It's not exactly an ideal comparison. But it reminds me a little bit of McCarthy. In oh, that, yeah. Uh, so he started out reasonably nobly, and he did have a point. There were insurrectionist communists from the Soviet Union in positions of power within the government. That And, and all throughout the United States, that was definitely a thing. However... He overstated the saturation of that to the point where he's like, Charlie Chaplin, you're a communist. Like, no, I'm fucking not. I'm a comedian. Uh, and well, see, that's the thing is you can't really create the fear and yeah. gain the control if you don't broaden yeah. scary people. Exactly. So Robespierre started out with a vision. He wanted the country in a specific way. And unlike at various points in history, the French actually got an opportunity to reshape their country, which they did, but there was a lot of bloodshed involved, and nobody's ledger was redder than Robespierre. Um, yeah. he, sl- he sliced everyone to pieces, and to the point where it was so popular to cut people's heads off that people were like, well, maybe it's time for you, arsehole. <laughs> yeah, so, you're next. You're on the chopping block, literally. Um, so I think with Robespierre, we talk about the different kinds of idiots, um, some people are just stupid and do terrible, stupid things. Some people are arseholes and do terrible, stupid things. Some people start out with good intentions and lose sight of who they are and what they mean to do. And I think Robespierre is kind of the classic embodiment of that, in that he started out with an idea, and you know, eventually parts of that idea came to fruition. France became this incredible republic. Um, but he got carried away and everything. So I think in that sense, and the fact that he killed so many people, holy shit, a lot of whom didn't deserve it, really. And if we're talking about, you know, people deserving death, I personally don't believe anyone deserves death, no matter what they've done. I think, you know, life imprisonment is definitely a thing, but there has to be an element of rehabilitation or reappropriation when it comes to what they've done. Right, you got to learn from it. You can't, what's the <laughs> point otherwise? You know, yeah. you're just giving in to your baser instincts by killing them. So um, for that, I say Robespierre is an 87. He's definitely Ooh. up there. Yeah, that's a fair one. I, think, I actually, go on, yeah, I don't gonna... know. I had a lot of fun because in yeah. America, we focus a lot on the American Revolution during sure. that time period and just mm. kind of gloss over 
everything that was going on in Europe at the time, and yeah. there was a shit ton. <laughs> there were a lot. In fact, there was um, a period in European history, because revolutions happened consistently for like the next 60, 70, even 100 years after that. And there's a, a period in European history, in the revolutions of 1848, I think it is, where like Russia, Germany, France, everyone was having a revolution. And over here in England, people were like, ooh, rights for the working man that sounds really fucking good to me and the royals went oh god quickly do something and they went here here's a giant <laughs> crystal palace we've built you look it's full of trinkets and stuff you can touch and it's totally free to go in and we're like oh great we'll we'll go in there and then we just sort of forgot about like kind of uh burning stuff down and then eventually the crystal palace itself burned down because we've been distracted for long enough at that point you'd have enough you working people that had enough free stuff at that point so <laughs> It's time to burn that shit down. But yeah, I think Rospierre is is definitely an 87 because I would have rated him higher because of his body count, but for the fact that he genuinely did start out with good intentions. Right. Um, I feel like I kind of relate with the guy. I feel yeah. like I, I agree with a lot of the stuff early on. I do as well. I've also fallen victim to the, you know, give a, give a mofo a, a rope, you want to be a cowboy syndrome. Where yeah, I just get a little carried away every now and again. Everybody so, does. Everyone believes their own hype, you know? It's totally <laughs> fine. <laughs> so, uh, Ross Pierre, the man who uh, started out well, but just couldn't stop murdering people. Um, now it's time for my idiots. Um, I'm excited, man. That's yeah. I rushed through it I, so I, I could hear you. <laughs> <laughs> I, may have, I may have hyped this possibly a little bit too much, but I'm, I'm glad... I got everything um, sorted and lined up for this because um, my idiot this week is a quintessential... Um, he's a phenom in the world of okay. music. He has an incredible legacy, but it's not all good. In fact, a lot of it is very bad. Let me introduce you to the life and times of James Ambrose Johnson Jr., better known as Rick James, bitch! <laughs> <laughs> All I right. Couldn't <laughs> wait for this one. Holy shit. Um, James Ambrose Johnson Jr., which is the last time you'll ever hear me refer to him as that, <laughs> was born on February the 1st, 1948, in Buffalo, New York, to Mabel, niece Sims, and James Ambrose Johnson Sr. He was one of eight children. Holy shit. Um, yeah, that's a big <laughs> fucking family. Uh, James's father, an auto worker, left the family when James was 10. His mother was a dancer for Catherine Dunham and later worked okay. as a numbers runner to earn a living. You're going to have to tell me what a numbers runner is. I'm not entirely sure what that is. It's like, uh, like a bookie. Oh, she's a bookie. Oh, yeah. they it's say. It's like the, the numbers game is like a lottery thing. Right. Okay. Yeah. So this, this is not a good start for him. His dad's left at 10. He's one of eight kids, and his mum is now essentially involved in organised crime. This is this is not a good start. Um, <laughs> James's mother would take him on her collecting route, and it was in bars where she worked that James saw performers such as John Coltrane, Miles Davis, and Etta James perform. That, nice. Nice. that is an eye-opening experience for someone who is young, and they're like, oh my god. I am surrounded by people who are musical gods, you know, or, yeah. or super talented. That is kind of amazing. James claimed later, and this is where it all starts to go wrong, in the biography <laughs> Glow, which is awesome, uh, this is really sad, that he lost his virginity at age 9 or 10 to a 14-year-old local girl claiming his kinky nature came in early. Now, that's... He was say he was basically um, abused at that age. So what you've now got is a kid who is nine or ten, who has lost his dad, who is working with his mother in an organised crime underworld setting where he's surrounded by brilliant musicians, but is exposed to sexualization at an incredibly young age. This I, ain't a recipe. Kind of jealous though, a little bit though. I mean, it's kind of wild, but still, it's like. Yeah, it's <sighs> rough. Yeah, yeah, but. We're about hell of a story. <laughs> it's a hell of a story, and it only gets more insane from there. 
Um, James eventually attended Orchard Park High School and Bennett High School prior to dropping out. No surprise there. James was introduced to drugs at an early age and was busted for burglary as a young teen. So, again, we can see the rails coming off here. Due to his stints in jail for theft, James entered the United States Navy Reserve at 14 or 15, lying about his age to avoid the draft. Whoa, okay. Yeah. Dude, just <laughs> fucking can't stop. During that Jeez. time, he also became a drummer for a local ja- for local jazz groups in the New York City area. Due to him missing his twice monthly reserve sessions aboard the USS Enterprise. No kidding. Yeah, he beat Kirk to it. He was there before <laughs> Kirk. <laughs> um, he found himself ordered to Vietnam. Oof, 1964. Uh-oh. This is. That is not a good time to be in Vietnam. You want to do it when George Bush did it in 1981, when there's fuck all happening. Um, (laughs) And so, obviously, uh, because it's Rick James, bitch, he, in 1964, he fled to Toronto. Um, Sooner after... (laughs) This fucking story. That's right outside of Buffalo. I know, yeah. He was just like, (laughs) I'm just going to jump across the bay, bitch. Um, sooner after his arrival three drunk men tried to attack him outside a club a trio of men uh, came to his aid one of those men was Levon Helm who at the time was an undiscovered member of Ronnie Hawkins backing band um, here's the first time that fate has intervened on Rick James's part because it sure as fuck won't be the last time and it certainly isn't the most shocking time either um, okay Levon Holm, Helm, sorry, invited James to their show later that night, and he ended up performing on stage with them. In Toronto, James made friends with local musicians Neil Young and Joni Mitchell. Well, how about that? <laughs> this guy, so again, he knows everybody. I know he's like sixteen, and he's already met like Etta James, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, uh, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell. It, it, it's kind of amazing. He's surrounded by tragedy and amazing musicians his entire life. It just yeah. doesn't happen to I, anyone else except Rick James. Um, see, it was Neil Young that got him onto drugs, I bet. Uh, yeah, well, well, we'll get to that. <laughs> Holy shit. Well, no, he he was already doing weed at this oh, point, yeah, yeah, but okay. like the harder shit came, came much later on. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. Um, to avoid... Being caught by military authorities, James went under the assumed name Ricky James Matthews. That same year, James formed the Minor Birds, a band that produced a fusion of soul, folk, and rock music. So kind of similar to what he ended up doing uh, when he became really famous, right? Um, In 1965, the band briefly recorded for the Canadian division of Columbia Records, releasing the single Minor Bird Hop and Minor Bird Song. At one point, Nick St. Nicholas of later Steppenwolf fame was a member. Um, Holy crap! Steppenwolf, yeah, Steppenwolf. (laughs) Uh, Eventually, bassist Bruce Palmer replaced him by the time the Minor Bird Hop was recorded. James and Palmer recruited uh, guitarist Tom Morgan and Xavier Taylor and drummer Rick Mason to form a new Minor Birds lineup and soon travelled to Detroit to record with Motown. Hooray! Dude, he's, he's just rocking and rolling. He is, uh, he is the embodiment of rock and roll. I think at this point, pretty <laughs> much, um, before the group began uh, began recording their first uh, songs for the label, Morgan left unhappy about the label's attitude towards the musicians. Neil Young eventually took his place, and it was while in Detroit that James met his musical heroes, Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder. Fucking hell, this guy. Whoa. I know. He is surrounded by some of the greatest names of all amazing. time. Amazing. It's kind of amazing. After meeting Stevie Wonder um, and telling him his name, Wonder felt the name Ricky James Matthews was too long and instead told James to shorten it to Ricky James, although he left out the bitch part. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> in 1966, a financial dispute in Toronto between James and the Minor Birds handler Morley Shellman. Yeah, led to Motown learning of James's fugitive status with the Navy, so Shellman basically sold him out. What a piece of shit. Um, <laughs> hoping to present, prevent any scrutiny, Motown executives told James they would not be uh, releasing any more of his materials and convinced him to come back and work with them after straightening out his legal issues. James surrendered himself to the FBI and in May 1966 was sentenced by the Navy to five months hard labour for unauthorised absence. That's... 
kind of a light damn. sentence. Yeah, god damn. But then again, you know, who wants to go to fucking Vietnam? Um, right. Well, I'll take hard labor over Vietnam. Fucking yeah. What, yes, I will take that shit. Um, <laughs> he was not yet 19 years old. And he'd already been through all of this, which fucking hell. James escaped from the Brooklyn Naval Brig after only six weeks confinement. But following oh, another man. six months as a fugitive, surrendered himself for a second time. 19, and he's already a fucking lunatic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> with help from his mother, James found legal assistance from his cousin, future congressman louis stokes this guy is connected to everyone wow. in history his his bacon number must be the smallest there is possible i i can't believe it um and <laughs> another attorney former marine captain john brackman who pled james's second court uh marshal down from a potential five years hard labor to five months so he just ended up with the five months again basically after his release from Portsmouth Naval Prison in August 1967, James returned to Toronto and endured another detention, initially derailing resumption of his career with the minor bird band Neil Merriweather, with whom he would later collaborate first at Motown and then later in Los Angeles. In 1968, again working under the pseudonym Ricky Matthews, James produced and wrote songs at Motown for acts such as The Miracles, Bobby Taylor and the Vancouver's, and The Spinners. Uh, I, those are kind of lesser-known names, but still, the guy's yeah. working. I'm really happy that he's working at this point, and if he could have stayed as a kind of a songwriter to the stars, he'd have probably been fine, but that wasn't the road yeah. that he went down. It's not no. the road at all. <laughs> According to James, he briefly got in... Oh, God, here we go. According to James, he briefly got involved in pimp activity during this time, <laughs> but stopped because he felt he was not qualified for it due to the harsh activity and the abuse of women there. I repeat, Rick okay. James felt unqualified to be a pimp. <laughs> that is the weirdest fucking statement I've ever had to read. Ah, yeah, well. <laughs> I can't get over it. I can't get over how insane this man's life is. Fucking. Oh, yeah. It was during this ah. third stint at Motown that James met musician Greg Reeves. Reeves, hoping to find a better situation than the uh, $38 a week, which is actually $650 in 2021 dollars, so he wasn't doing too badly. Um, he was earning as a session <laughs> basis. That's not bad, dude. What's wrong with you? No. He was working as a session bassist for Barry Gordy. Um, he joined James uh, looking to hitch a lift from Neil Young's Rising Star and relocated to Los Angeles along with James. On one of the first nights in Los Angeles, James was crashing, crashing on musician Stephen Stills' couch. So... Uh-huh. Okay, well, that makes sense. Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, when he woke, he saw a stoned young man sitting on the floor in the lotus position. The man's wrists were bleeding, so a scared James sought help. James was later formally introduced to the man, who was in fact Jim Morrison, lead singer of The Doors. Holy crap. <laughs> you wake up and Jim Morrison's sitting in the lotus position, fucking blood dripping from his wrists. Um, what the hell? I know. It's <laughs> fucking insane. After the doors opened for Buffalo Springfield at Whiskey A Go-Go, Morrison tricked James into taking acid. Fuck you, Jim Morrison. <laughs> Here, eat this stamp. Eat this I don't know why. <laughs> I, t I promise it'll be helpful. Rick James didn't need any help being crazy in his life, so no. Jim Morrison could get fucked for that. That was a terrible thing to do. In California, James initially worked as a duo with Greg Reeves, but soon after James introduced Reeves to Neil Young, it was Reeves, not James, who was hi hired as bassist for the newly formed rock supergroup Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. So, uh -huh. yeah, kind of got fucked a little bit there as well, which, which wouldn't have helped his his kind of personality one bit. Uh, around this time, James formed several versions of the rock and roll band uh, Salt and Pepper, not the rap group from the 80s, and got involved with hairstylist Jay Seberg, who agreed to invest in his music. James claimed that in 1969, Seberg invited him to attend a party at actress Sharon Tate's house. Get out of here. I'm not fucking kidding. But he was too hungover to get out of bed. The next morning... Lucky him. 
Yeah. The next morning, he discovered that Seaberg had been murdered, and he saw the Los Angeles headline, Sharon Tate, four others murdered. First of all, that's the second time that fate has intervened in Rick James's behalf, and uh, boy, did it do him a favour there. Although I do feel that if the Manson family had showed up to Sharon Tate's house and they'd met Rick James, they'd have fucking run for the hills. Uh, probably. Because he is <laughs> probably more insane than Charles Manson, um, even at this point in his life. So, Did you see that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I still haven't seen that yet. I haven't had the time oh. to watch it, and I really want to. Um, I think it might have gone a little bit more like that. <laughs> it might have, have been there. I'm Rick James, you crazy fuckers. So, <laughs> yeah, they'll be oh, get, get the fuck away from this guy. He is crazy. <laughs> Let's get back home where things are somewhat normal. Um, in 1973, James signed with A&M Records, where his first single under the name Rick James, My Mama, was released in 1974, becoming a club hit in Europe. In 1976, James returned to Buffalo and formed the Stone City Band. Uh, shortly thereafter, he recorded Get Up and Dance, his second single to be released. In 1977, James and the Stone City Band um, signed a contract with Motown's Gordy Records imprint, where they began recording their first album in New York City. In 1978 of April that year, James released his debut solo album, Come Get It, which included the Stone City Band. The album launched the top 20 hit You and I, which became his first number one R&B hit. The album also included the hit single Mary Jane, um, which eventually sold 2 million copies, launching James's musical career career to stardom and helping out Motown at the time, who were, they were fucking fading fast by this point. Um, Holy shit. Give him a little booster shot. Yeah, like, we will take it. Rick, keep on pumping out the hits. (laughs) In early 1979, James's second album, Busting Out of L7, followed the previous album's success, eventually selling a million copies. A third album, Fire It Up, was released in 1979, going gold. Around that same period, James was uh, James launched his first headlining tour, the Fire It Up tour, and agreed to invite then-upcoming artist Prince, as well as singer Tina Marie, as his opening act. Just, Good grief. I know. He knows Just everybody. Russian life at this point. He totally is. James had produced Marie's successful Motown debut, Wild and Peaceful, and was featured on the hit debut, I'm a Sucker for Your Love. James was credited <laughs> with naming Marie Lady T on the song, a nickname that stuck with Marie for the rest of her career. The Fired Up tour led to James developing a bitter rivalry with Prince after he accused the, accused the musician of ripping off his act, which... You kind of look at the two and you're like, there's something there. Similarities, for sure. But then again, it's like, it's Prince. I don't know. Prince did it better. Yeah, he did. <laughs> Let's be honest. Let's be honest. Prince is uh, one of a kind. Rick James was very, very good. But I, I think Prince was Prince, as much as I can see. Um, yeah. Following the end of the tour in 1980, James released the ballad's heavy Garden of Love, which featured his fourth gold record. In 1981, James recorded his best-selling album to date, Street Songs, which, like his previous four albums, was a concept album. Street Songs featured a fusion uh, mix of different genres, including rock and new wave, as well as James's brand of crossover funk, enabling James's own style of punk funk. The album featured hit singles such as Ghetto Life, the Tina Marie duet Fire and Desire, Give It To Me Baby, and his biggest crossover (laughs) hit to date, Super Freak, which peaked at number 16. Holy shit, that song. Number 16 on the Billboard Hot 100 and sold over 1 million copies. God damn. Um, Street Songs peaked at number one on uh, R&B and uh, top three on pop, which is amazing. Sold over 3 million copies in the US alone. Following up the success, James released two more gold albums, 1972's Throwing Down and 19... uh, Sorry, 1982's Throwing Down and 1983's Cold-Blooded. During this period... Everything he touches turns to gold. At this point, yeah, and cocaine. Um, (laughs) (laughs) During this period, when Prince became a success as a producer and other acts including The Time and Vanity Six, James launched the act's uh, Process and the Do-Rags and the Mary Jane Girls, featuring his former backing singer, 
uh, Joanne McDuffie as the lead vocalist, and uh, she helped him out with hits like All Night Long, Candyman, and In My House. I'm just gonna gloss a lot of this. It like goes on about its thing, uh, but we can. I think we can all agree at this point. Um, it's kind of an amazing career, right? Oh yeah. Up until 1986, he was massive across the world, which is kind of incredible given all he's been through in his life at this point, all the challenges. He has turned himself into one of the biggest musicians on the planet at this point. Oh, yeah. And he has he worked like five with five gold albums. Five gold Four albums. Years. And like <laughs> he's sold over 20 million records at this point worldwide, which is a great number for, for that time and that era. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> but now we get to the difficult part. And this is the usual uh, Rick James bullshit. James's controversial and provocative image became troublesome sometimes, famous for promoting the use of marijuana live in concerts during a time when simple marijuana possession could lead to long-term prison sentences. He'd smoke that shit on stage and basically challenge the police to arrest him. <laughs> James was often threatened by cops in various cities that he would be arrested if he smoked marijuana on stage during performances of songs such as Fire It Up and Mary Jane. I wonder why they were called those those names. Uh, I couldn't have anything to do with marijuana. No, exactly. It's not like he was... Smoking joints on stage. Not like he was super into that shit or anything. According to <laughs> Kerry Gordy, who sounds like Terry Gordy, but the wrestling brain in mind, that's, that's me. Uh, most Motown executives erroneously thought latter, the latter song... Um, so this is... T- most Motown executives are so out of touch at this point. They thought that the song Mary Jane was simply just a cute love song. To a girl. <laughs> Not knowing that the song was about marijuana. I don't buy that for a fucking second. I, I guarantee at least one of them was still like, no, that's that's weed, right? He's talking about smoking weed. Maybe we should think about this more carefully. Um, <laughs> James's overtly sexual bravado made it tough for him to uh, become a bigger mainstream act after the debut of the fledgling music video network MTV in August 1981. God, MTV used to be so cool. Holy shit. That MTV back in the day was so amazing. Oh. I wish they would bring it. Oh, God. I'm sick of I reality just, television. Just for, pro, just for um, what's it? Just for nostalgia's sake. I would love original MTV around, or like up until the early 90s. Oh, my God. It was so fucking good. James yeah. tried to present the music videos uh, Super Freak to the label only for the channel to turn the video down. James accused the network of racism. MTV denied this, stating the, re- the, the real reason Super Freak was turned down by MTV was because they felt James' video was far too vulgar for the channel, which, like, it's fucking MTV. Like, get off. Well, I mean, early <laughs> on, I, could, I guess maybe. Maybe but, in the early days, like, yeah, but that did not last very long they had, at like, all. like, two live crew and shit on there. I know. So. Fucking hell. <laughs> when younger artists such as Michael Jackson and Prince found fame on the channel, James accused the two singers of being tokens in a 1983 interview. Oh. I know. Fucking hell. Um, and demanding that any black artist that has a video aired on MTV take their video off the channel in protest. James's rant was co-signed, and this is interesting, by David Bowie, who argued uh, with MTV VJ Mark Goodman about the lack of black artists being featured on the channel, despite the successes of Jackson and Prince. Now, when you've got Bowie on your side, you kind of might be right at that point. Maybe. Yeah, it's like there is definitely something there, because early MTV was American music at that time. To have separate charts, we don't. We, didn't, we never had that over here. We just had one really? chart. Yeah, we, we only ever had... The top thirty. It was only, and it, were, it was entirely integrated from the moment like Top of the Pops came around in the nineteen sixties. Before that, even when there were other shows, it was. Um, it was so the idea of like an R and B chart or like an urban chart or whatever it might have been. It's kind of bit weird to me well we like to take things and put them into little boxes uh, here okay so that we can stay good and separate yes separate <laughs> but equal of course uh-huh. uh, when mtv and bet both avoided playing the video for lucy's rap because of its graphic sexual content james considered the networks hypocritical in the light of them still playing provocative videos by uh, artists such as madonna which is a fair point madonna was yeah. Pretty. I mean, even back in the eighties, she was super provocative. She hadn't quite done like a prayer yet, but man, they were pretty out there. Some of those videos for the time. Yeah. In nineteen eighty, in nineteen eighty nine, James's eleventh album, Kicking, was released 
only in the UK. By 1990, he'd lost his deal with Warner Brothers and Jones began struggling with personal and legal troubles. However, to the rescue comes MC Hammer, releasing his signature <laughs> song, You Can't Touch This, which sampled the prominent opening riff from Super Freak. Uh, James and his co-writer on Super Freak, Alonzo Miller, successfully sued Hammer for a shared uh, songwriting credit, and all three consecutively released um, uh, received Grammy Awards for Best R&B Song in 1991, and also got him a shitload of money because that song was everywhere. Oh my god! Right, I was. Oh yeah, I think I was ten years old. In nine, yeah, I was ten years old when that song came out. It was on every channel. I mean, we're not just talking about MTV, like fucking news stories about it every video package would feature it there were people doing the dance people buying parachute pants it was kind of oh yeah they started moving it into movies he started like yeah Yeah. hammer was everywhere and i guarantee that like 50 percent of the money he made off that record went to rick james so good for rick james and the rest of it just ran off yeah exactly (laughs) Rick James needed uh, nose candy money, and boy, did he get it in spades in 1991. In 1997, James released Urban Rhapsody, his first album since his release from prison on assault charges. And he toured to promote the album. The same year, he discussed his life and career in interviews with MTV uh, musical documentary series Behind the Music, which aired in early 1998. That was kind of notorious. I mean, a lot of Behind the Music stuff was quite intense at the time uh but yeah the rick james stuff it's like they haven't seen anything when they, until they see rick james um it's another show i miss from mtv oh god that was that was so cool i, I mean there's an obsession at the moment with documentaries until you've seen behind the music vh1 you just like it's kind of a lot of the stuff that went on oh my god it's shocking the stuff that they right. reveal in those shows um, James's musical career slowed down again after he suffered a minor stroke during a concert in 1998. He was featured on the song Gravy Love with Ike Turner, just an FYI, fuck you, Ike Turner, you scumbag, <laughs> um, for the 1998 soundtrack album Chef Aid, the South Park album. Yeah, Rick James buddy. was on South Park. It's fucking made that we can... Retire happy now that those two things have collided. <laughs> James accept, uh, accepted an offer by Eddie Murphy to appear in oh, the yeah. comedy drama Life. <clears throat> so I, I kind of didn't include it. I don't know uh, why I didn't include it. I must have just, when I was copying and pasting and writing and stuff, I mustn't have included it. We can't talk about Rick James without talking about the amazing appearances on The Chappelle Show, where... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Charlie Murphy talks about his life (laughs) and he talks hilarious stories about his encounter with Prince when Prince absolutely demolished him while playing basketball but the two funniest ones are the Rick James um, moments where he talks about Rick James punching him in his face with a ring that had unity written on it uh, (laughs) and then beating the crap out of Rick James and they actually have Rick James there to recall to kind of talk about some of this stuff and he was like ah charlie murphy thinks he's bruce lee or some shit but then there's another (laughs) one where they talk about rick james going to eddie murphy and charlie murphy's house at the time and uh, eddie murphy had brand new um suede couches and rick james walked in with boots on that were covered in mud and just like deliberately smeared mud and crap all over these sofas and while he was doing it, apparently he was staring both Murphy brothers in the face. So they beat the shit out of him, um, apparently, <laughs> to the point where he had to drag himself off the sofas. And there's a, they cut back to Rick James, and he's like, I wouldn't just go in someone's house and just smear stuff. I didn't do, do stuff just for doing it. No, I wouldn't do that. What kind of a person do you think I am? He pauses for two seconds, and he goes, yeah, I remember smearing shit all over Eddie Murphy's couch. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> So Rick James was That's... high during that interview, and boy, can you tell because he slurs his speech. Even though he's like funny and coherent and stuff, it, 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 he gave us the famous quote: "Cocaine is a hell of a drug." From that interview, which oh, is yeah. just amazing. <clears throat> if you've never seen the Chappelle Show sketches about, uh, well, featuring Charlie Murphy, who bless his heart, he passed away last year, I think. Um, an amazing, amazing talent, Charlie Murphy. Such a good writer as well. Go back and watch them, but be warned, um, Comedy Central does not pay 
Dave Chappelle royalties for those those fucking appearances. So which is nuts. yeah, that is bullshit. So if you want to stick it to Comedy Central, I feel completely uh, fine in telling you to torrent those because. If you're not going to pay talent residuals for the work they put in decades ago, then you deserve to have your shit pirated, to be quite frank. Um, now we get to the really messed up stuff. Um, <laughs> friendships. James's friendship with Eddie Murphy and uh, Murphy's older brother Charlie were recounted as uh, they were close friends. Um, he met Eddie Murphy in 1981. Um, he's also close to Charlie Murphy, who worked as a security guard for his brother. And uh, we've just talked about the skits. James was good friends with actress Debbie Allen. Um, Allen once invited James to a Broadway show and sent a car to pick him up. During the show, (laughs) James fell asleep Uh uh, due to exhaustion from prior sexual activities. So yeah, he was up for four days on cocaine and yep. sex. Rick James <laughs> was awake for basically seventy-two hours doing drugs, having sex with as many prostitutes as he could get his hands on, and then his friend was like, "Oh, Debbie, yeah, I'll come to your show." And then he's fucking snoring, probably still got powder all <laughs> over his face. Um, afterwards, Alan <laughs> confronted him in the dressing room. She pinned him down and pleaded that he was throwing his life away. All you do is get high and have sex, she said. He promised <laughs> to change his ways. But he broke his promise the same night. Yeah, because he's Rick, right. Rick James. The same <laughs> fucking night. Oh my god, uh, uh, James was. Dude, I'm still playing those clips in my head oh. where he's kicking that couch. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck your couch. Uh, so, <laughs> James was also a friend of fellow Motown act performers Smokey Robinson and Marvin Gaye. That's really cool that he could have been like friends with someone he idolized. That's really cool. Right. And, and like, yeah. I kind of, I know Marvin Gaye was no saint, but I kind of feel like if, if Rick James had maybe spent a bit more time with him, maybe he'd have been a bit calmer, you know, a bit more yeah, level-headed, maybe. you know? Because Marvin did not do coke. Marvin was not a coke guy. He probably would have smoked weed and that would have been it, just chilled and drunk and stuff, but that's it. Well, if it would have been Crosby, Stills... Oh, he'd have been dead. Nash and James. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can you imagine? They'd have all been dead in a year. It would have been terrible. <laughs> um, so let's see. What else have we got? Uh, idolized as a teenager. Additionally, he befriended Gay's second wife, Janice, and um, his, he was godfather of Gay's daughter, Nona. James's relationship with Robinson began shortly after James signed with Motown, and in 1983, the duo recorded the hit Ebony Eyes, which is a fucking amazing song, got to be honest. Um, James also idolised former Temptations lead singer David Ruffin and Ruffin's self-proclaimed, co- self-proclaimed cousin, bass vocalist Melvin Franklin, and uh, grabbed at the chance to produce the hit Standing on, uh, Standing on the Top for them back in 1982. Before that, the then-current lineup of the group uh, recorded backing vocals on two James-associated projects, uh, James Street songs, uh, including Ghetto Life and Super Freak, and Tina Maria's It Must Be Magic. So, yeah, he's uh, famously shouted out, Temptation, sing! Like that, so that's, that's the Temptation <laughs> singing in the background. Now we move on to the drugs. Um, <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> James's drug problems began in his teens, first with marijuana and then heroin. So that was very quick... Uh, Hell of escalation. a <laughs> Jesus. Uh, he began using cocaine in the late 60s. How the fuck did he live as long as he did? Um, his cocaine addiction increased by the 1980s, so he'd been doing it for 20 years at this point, so his his threshold must have been fucking through the ceiling. And he began freebasing by the end of the decade. When he smoked crack cocaine in Be- his Beverly Hills mansion, he often put up aluminium foil on the windows to block out onlookers. Because they're like, oh my god, it's Rick James. Wait, what's all that rock doing around his living room? <laughs> <laughs> Although James claims uh, he quit cocaine when he entered prison, his autopsy found that there was a small amount of the drug in his bloodstream at the time. To be honest, knowing Rick James, that could have been residual. You know, it. Well, I think by that, doing it for 20 years yeah. is blood might have just been powdered yeah his blood was essentially white at that point it was like Aerosmith's (laughs) fucking dressing room in the 1980s his drug use led to major health problems in April 1984 he was hospitalised after being found unconscious in the middle of his house by a friend in 1998 he suffered a stroke after a blocked blood vessel ruptured in his neck during a concert at Mile High uh, Stadium in Denver and imagine the altitude would have probably played a part in that aspect as well um, Clumped up that powdery bloody head. Yeah, exactly. Kind of thinned it out even more. 
Earlier that year, he had a hip replacement surgery to repair bone damage from jumping around on stage and substance abuse. I love that, like, oh, Rick, you've got to stop jumping around on stage. Wait, why are you doing cocaine right now, Rick? We're trying to talk to you about a medical diagnosis. <laughs> now we get to the even more messed up shit. By the 1990s, Rick James's drug use was public knowledge. He was heavily addicted to cocaine and later admitted to spending $7,000 a week on drugs. For five years straight, this man... Holy shit. That's so much money. Oh, and this is the 90s. Yeah. £7,000 in today's money from the 90s. You're looking at like 30 grand a week. That's so much yeah, money. Yeah, that's nuts. That is crazy. James, uh, sorry, on August 2nd, 1991, James and his girlfriend Tanya Hijazi were arrested on charges of holding 24-year-old Francis Alley hostage for up to six days, tying her up, forcing her to perform sex acts, and burning her legs and abdomen with the hot end of crack cocaine pipes during a week-long cocaine binge. He must have been completely delirious or just a bastard, to be honest. Um, That's nutty. That's bad. It's not good, is it? Um, So much for... uh, not being able to be qualified to be a pimp because yeah, he didn't believe in abusive that's, women. That's pretty fucking... Out the window. Out there, yeah. <laughs> you were definitely qualified to be a, prim- a pimp, buddy. Uh, James faced a maximum <laughs> life sentence in prison if convicted on all charges, which included assault with a deadly weapon. I'm assuming the crack pipe must have been big. Aggravated mayhem, <laughs> which sounds like an album he could have released. Um, torture. Using that one. Oh, and this is the worst part. Forcible oral copulation, false imprisonment, and kidnapping. On November the 3rd, 1992, while out on bail for the incident, James, under the influence of cocaine, assaulted music executive Mary Seiger Seiger, at the St. James Club and Hotel in West Hollywood. Seiger claims uh, she met James and Hijazi for a business meeting, but said the two then kidnapped and beat her for a 20-hour period. He's out on bail for the same fucking thing at this point. James was found guilty of both offences, but was cleared of a torture charge that could have put him in prison for the rest of his life. While serving his five-year prison sentence... What? I know. Fucking kidnaps two people, basically rapes one of them, and tortures them for days on end. He got five years in Folsom. Uh, James lost a civil suit to Seeger, good for her, and was awarded nearly $2 million in damages in 1994. He basically, he would have been wiped out by the time he came out of prison with all this. Um, James was ordered to pay her about $1 million. The hotel and a private security firm were found liable for nearly 750,000 damages, good, uh, due to negligence. James was released from prison on August 21st, 1996, after serving two years in prison for that shit. Not even half the sentence was spent in prison. On the morning of August the 6th, 2004, James's caretaker found him dead in his Los Angeles home uh, at the Oak Oakwood Toluca Hills apartment complex just outside Burbank. His longtime publicist, Sajita Murthy, released a statement to the media stating he died of natural causes. Fuck off. Um, well, I mean, if you're that addicted to cocaine, I suppose an overdose would be a natural cause. Yeah, kind of at that point, you are 50% cocaine, I guess. So, <laughs> James died from pulmonary failure and cardiac failure associated with his various health conditions of diabetes, stroke. He had a pacemaker and a heart attack. His autopsy found alprazolam, dia, uh, diazepam, bupropion. Uh, citrolopram, citrolopram, hydrocodone, <laughs> digoxin. Well, two of those are <laughs> depression meds. Uh, it, it keeps then... going. Chlorophenarim, um, okay, and meth, and cocaine, <laughs> and meth, and meth, and cocaine in his blood. So his uh, blood was essentially pills and coke yeah. at that point, and crystal. No kidding. However, the coroner stated that none of the drugs or drug combinations were found to be at levels that were life-threatening in and of themselves. Just fucking... How many drugs does someone need in their system before it becomes a problem for a coroner? Really? It's like, and <laughs> well, when your blood stops moving, that's when it's a problem. But it could still move around the pills and the coke and the rock and stuff. Right? Fuck. It's just jellied <laughs> pills. It become a non-Newtonian just, fluid. Uh, at that point it's like you could have stepped on his blood and made a bridge out of it 
However, the coronary... Uh, yeah, we've read that part. Following a public viewing by fans, a private memorial was held at Forest Lawn Memorial Park, Hollywood Hills. James was buried at the Forest Lawn Cemetery in Buffalo, New York in 2004. And thus ends the insane tale of Rick fucking James. And oh my God, it's kind of insane the life that man had it dude not even kind of it's just straight up yeah batshit crazy it is completely insane and i mean you know we've talked about this before about people who become serial killers or people who become problems or people who become dangerous early trauma is almost always a significant indicator that they are going to become problems themselves in later life however rick james had so much trauma that by the time he was even 19, he was just fucked. Like, there was no chance for him to have a normal life at that point. So what do you make yeah. of the, the uh, in-depth well, life of Rick James? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> I mean, I, um, I, th- I think maybe life got too boring for him, too. <laughs> I mean, Jesus, he's like... Knocking it out of the park early on. Yes. He's friends with everybody. Everyone. All these talented yeah, people. These legends. It's, what else are you going to do? You just got to start snorting cocaine yep. and heroin and uh, everything else you can get. Literally, literally um, every single mm-hmm. drug known to humankind was in his system at the end, apparently. So, fuck. Right. <laughs> um, God, I just because the story was so good and his life is so insane, insane. I want to give him like a, a high score but I mean yeah he didn't ca- I mean okay yeah he did some pretty horrible shit like evil shit yeah he get extra points with the burning people with crack pipe and yeah. the torture rape yeah. kidnapping thing but yeah. he didn't I murder anyone and like in terms of I think I guess you, you look at it in terms of the positives he gave the world I mean obviously you know he was ta- a terrible human being from what we can tell but he gave the world some amazing stuff, uh, some amazing yes. art, and yeah. uh, th- you add points for that, but, you know, it, <laughs> he contributed to society. Some of the people we've covered did not contribute to society. Some people have actually destroyed society for some parts. Some people have ended the world, more or less. So Straight yeah, up. Yeah, straight up. <laughs> so for that... Um, you know that that goes in his favor, but just the most insane life. And really, when I was thinking about it, because I did have somebody else in mind, and I may cover them at an, a later opportunity. But I was just randomly, I was like, "What about Rick James? Oh my God, Rick James!" <laughs> and then I remembered all of the shit he got up to, and I I read more, and I was like, "I can't even fucking believe half of this stuff." I didn't even know a lot of the good stuff about him, but yeah, just the most incredible life. Um, why isn't Absolutely. there a Rick James biopic? Is there, there has to be. There should be. That, That's another one. Damn it, Netflix, get on. God it. damn it, Netflix, <laughs> give us the money. Um, like, who do you get to play Rick James? Though, I mean, really, who's gonna take? That's that's a that's like Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle. Fuck yeah, perfect. <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> I'm sure he'd do that as long as he got paid enough money. Yeah. So, what's your score? Yeah, give him royalties too. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna say. For Rick James. Gosh. I'm going to say 78. I like that, yeah. That's so, ironic okay. because that was probably his peak year <laughs> as well. So, uh, <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Before it all Symbolism. Went, <laughs> before it went horribly wrong. Um, so, there we have it. Ross Pierre, the father of the guillotine in France, gets an 87. And then inversely, Rick James, possibly the father of cocaine, gets a 78. <laughs> <laughs> I I kind of loved doing this. I loved researching Rick James because, I mean, God damn, what a life. Met all oh, these no amazing people, did all of this incredible shit. But the thing is, I just, I kind of wish the last 10 years of his life, because he didn't live long after he was released from prison, I do wish he'd kind yeah. of slowed down because there's always a point at which certain people... Going back to Aerosmith, Steven Tyler, Joe Perry, guys from, um, like, I was going to say the Ramones, but they're all fucking dead. Um, the guys from the Rolling Stones. Um, oh, yeah. Like, there comes a point when these people are just like, maybe I should stop 
so that I can spend some time with my family. And I just wish that Rick James had just like slowed down so that he'd have lived beyond 2004. Because, you know, who's born in 1948? The guy wouldn't have been especially old at this point. You know, he's he's only a few years older than my dad. So I feel like if he'd just right. calmed that shit down, he'd have been okay for right. a while, but he just couldn't stop. So when he had the opportunities he to, did he could have got uh, clean in prison a lot of people do you know yeah but you know he so. could have spent those two years getting rehab either finding religion or finding peace um or getting counseling for some of the the stuff that went on because i mean he might gloss over as oh he was kinky at a young age he was sexually abused by that that, that girl and that ain't good so uh, the stuff he was exposed to will have damaged him, and I just wish a world-class psychologist could have gone in and gone, Rick, you have had some fucked-up experiences. Do you want to talk about them? Maybe it'll help. Um, could have. Yeah, maybe it could have done. So, Rick James, an amazing story, and one of the things that, as someone who has written in the past, you love when you get stories like this because it's so fascinating, the human experience that these people go through is insane. And Rose-Pierre, who is kind of, uh, other than like a few other figures, probably the figurehead of the French Revolution and how astray it went from from its base instincts. Um, a really cool episode. I've really enjoyed uh, talking to you, Derek, about this and doing the research, and I feel like we've gotten a number of quotes that I can use about Rick James. <laughs> But yeah, have you Dude. had fun doing uh, Rospierre? Because uh, it's kind of, uh, I guess, like like you said, it was you learned a lot about the French Revolution by researching this. Yeah, it's like a, a deeper dive into the stuff we glossed over. So I, I enjoyed, yeah, like getting to be a little bit better educated at the same time. And then hell yeah, your story was entertaining <laughs> as hell. I didn't know half that stuff. I didn't. <laughs> like he knew everybody. It was fucking crazy. Oh, yeah. He could have been killed by the Manson family. He got <laughs> fucking roofied by Jim Morrison. It's just all sorts of insane shit going on there. Uh, um, I would definitely say for listeners out there, don't ever dose your friends. That's a dick do move. Do not do that. I mean, I know it was the <laughs> 60s and people were doing all sorts of crazy shit by then, but don't fucking stick anything in anyone's drink, especially if they've got tendencies to be insane. <laughs> you know, that is not a good thing to do for them. So I think that's that's probably going to do it for our show. I've, I've had so much fun doing this. And um, so the reason we do these things is to kind of give people lessons. So if you are out there and you feel like you are in a political situation where you feel that things have to change and finally they do start to change and you're at the forefront of that change, um, don't end up becoming a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> and if you are a damaged, incredibly talented individual with a back catalogue of work that j just would be the envy of the world, try and get off drugs and talk yes. to someone. For the love of fuck, don't do cocaine. Uh, <laughs> so until next time, um, uh, Derek, would you like to say goodbye? Bye, everybody. And uh, I've been Lev, and we will see you in the next episodes. Thank you. Bye now. Bye.